You're listening to the Manmukti Podcast, where we open dialogues on South Asian mental health, breaking the stigma one story at a time. I'm Girindeep, and on today's episode, we are highlighting September as Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. It is a common belief that childbirth is a magical time for all mothers. As a child takes their first breath, so does a woman take her first breath as a mother. And though it may be understood that children enter this world with no earthly wisdom, mothers, however, can find themselves lost in the postpartum world in search of support. As we learn to balance the weight of new responsibility while simultaneously heal from the physical pain of childbirth and the flurry of hormonal changes, it is not uncommon for our mental health to take a hit. I had a chance to sit down with psychiatrist Dr. Jasmine Singh to discuss the story of one such mother, Nima Bhagda. Nima was a 31-year-old new mother from a loving Gujarati family here in Southern California. Her family suffered a terrible loss when Nima lost her battle with postpartum depression and died by suicide earlier this year. In her last letter, she shared the following sentiment, quote, It was something you guys wouldn't understand because the Indian society does not fully understand postpartum depression. And to break this stigma surrounding postpartum mental health, her family and friends created the hashtag, Break the Stigma for Nima. This now-trending hashtag has been used by countless women across the world to share their personal narratives with postpartum depression. As Dr. Singh and I chatted on mood changes beyond the baby blues, we couldn't help but also speak on mental health stigmas and societal and cultural pressures that plague the South Asian community. Here's some of that conversation. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Singh. For our listeners, can you share a bit more about yourself and what you do? Sure, yes. Thank you for having me. I am a psychiatrist in a private practice providing telepsychiatry services to anyone living in California. I have been involved in mental health outreach in the media for almost three years now, and that's what we're here to do today. Love that. And I love your segments on social media. Thank you for sharing those. Thank you. Thank you for watching. <laughs> so, when did your interest in psychiatry begin? Well, when I was a third year medical student, my first rotation was in a psychiatric hospital. It was a very acute, critical place. People who are suicidal, having hallucinations. Mm -hmm. My heart just went out to them. I I felt something. It awoke something in me that I had to help these people. And I kept thinking about it and I kept learning. And it seemed to me so fascinating that in a disease like diabetes, which it's predominantly people's diet and exercise level, they can control, they have the wherewithal to know what to do, but with something so difficult as someone who has a psychotic disorder and they're hallucinating, we don't have as much available. We don't have the research and the amount of knowledge on how to very fine tune that kind of management like we do with diabetes. And so as a medical student, I thought, wow, I've learned so much fine tuning of treating diabetes, which is People can still function and and do what they need to do, but with something like a psychotic disorder, I I hadn't learned enough and I I feel that maybe it wasn't taught enough. So I had a lot of interest. I kept learning more and I 
selected psychiatry as my specialty. I love that. So it really sparked your passion. Thrills me to see a female South Asian psychiatrist. You are really paving the road in that field, especially with cultural psychiatry. Thank you. It's, uh, it's been a very interesting journey, both professionally and personally. So, so I, I thank you. I appreciate your support. Since September is Suicide Awareness Month, I want to shed some light on the recent passing of Nima Bhakta. Dr. Singh, upon hearing about Nima's passing, what were your initial reactions as someone who knew her somewhat personally and also as a psychiatrist who treats patients who may experience depression? I think you can never be anything but surprised and shocked when you hear about a suicide, someone who dies by suicide, that is. And so... A friend of ours actually told me about it. Like you said, I, I knew Nima. Uh, we were both undergraduate students at UC San Diego, and we weren't very close, but we were close enough to we had classes together. We were Facebook friends. You know, I knew she was on the dance team, and I found her to be a very bright, happy young woman. You know, we've lost touch since then. I went off to medical school, and she started working, and I, I knew she had gotten married. But to think that something like this would happen to her is shocking, both as a friend of hers, someone who knew her, and as a psychiatrist. I try my best to really screen for suicide with every patient because you just never know that if someone's having those thoughts or not. So just a lot of shock, a lot of sadness. She's like me, you know, she's a young Indian girl in California. We went to school together. We had the same major. I mean, it was... It was a lot. So to think that, you know, it could happen to someone so close to me was, was and is difficult. As soon as I saw her picture and then read the story, it just broke my heart. And I thought back to my journey as a new mom and I remember feeling so lost and right. not sure if anything is normal or if, if, if I'm doing the right thing. I think there's this added pressure, cultural pressure as well. But yeah, definitely a heartbreaking story in the least. Yeah, totally. So in one of the articles that I read shared by Tweak India, Nima's older sister spoke on some of the changes that she noticed in Nima, saying that right after the birth of her son, she was just a different person. And after returning from the hospital, she was nothing like the Nima that they knew and loved, and that she was no longer interested in simple things that brought her joy and became increasingly paranoid that she was not doing enough for her son. Can you elaborate a bit more on some of these early signs and maybe some of the subtleties that you're trained to pick up, but often we as family members can miss? The symptoms that her sister described are almost typical symptoms of depression, which can come up more often in the postpartum period. So postpartum meaning someone's, a woman has just given birth and there's a huge change in hormones. Your body, your mind, it goes through a lot as a woman who's just given birth. And in that context, symptoms of depression can come up. So there's a biological propensity to have symptoms of depression, meaning a change in your mood, a change in uh, your emotions. I think mm -hmm. when she says she felt that she, doesn't, she wasn't doing enough, that sounds like she had some guilt about not being this perfect mother. Energy, of course, you know, you have a new child, but on top of that, your biological energy level may be decreased. So there's many things to think about in that context. And I think just being vigilant as a family member to know that this is a very sensitive time and have a very low threshold to have your loved one, your loved 
mother, sister, daughter, whoever it is, your wife, to tell her, look, things are changing and I think you need to look for some help. So there is a spectrum to this, right? Like a spectrum of severity, right? So there's postpartum blues, which I think a lot of women experience in their first couple weeks. I think it's very common to experience that. For our listeners, do you mind to differentiate a bit between the baby blues, depression, and then something very serious like psychosis? Yes. So these are pretty much a indication of severity. So postpartum blues, it's just a couple days after giving birth that a woman may feel down. It can last a couple days or a week. But if things don't get better after two weeks, it can be considered a postpartum depression. And that would need treatment, absolutely would need treatment. Women who have had symptoms of depression, episodes of major depression in prior to giving birth, may be more likely to have postpartum depression. So it's something to think about. Also, you mentioned postpartum psychosis. So this is much rarer than postpartum depression. Postpartum depression comes up one in nine women who give birth, so a little over 10%. And postpartum psychosis is about one in a thousand. So it's- Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, it's much rarer but it's scarier, okay? Psychosis, for those who don't know, people lose their sense of reality. They hallucinate. They don't know what's real. They don't know what's fake. They can't tell you where they are, sometimes who they are. And it's a very scary phenomena. So that can come up pretty much shortly after giving birth. And of course it can happen to anybody, but if someone has bipolar disorder or a psychotic disorder, prior to becoming pregnant, they are more likely at that time to have postpartum psychosis. So I think an easy way to think about it is after giving birth, you're just more sensitive to having some type of mental illness, whether it's short, whether it's long, or whether it's very severe. So it's just a sensitive time and we need to think about it that way. Mm-hmm. Now, just to clarify this, is this something that always just occurs days to weeks or can this be months to years later and is that still considered postpartum or would that just be simple depression that would be depression but considering the life change that giving birth brings it's of course related so Mm -hmm. you may not have the immediate biological changes that cause you to have depression but your whole life has changed you have so many new responsibilities, a new identity, a new role. And I think that can, of course, lead to depression in anybody. Mm -hmm. And I think you had mentioned this a bit. Are there other mood disturbances that can surface during the postpartum period, like even if you don't have a history of them? Absolutely. Yes, of course. In many women, it's their first time ever feeling that way. And so it's very scary, you can imagine, Mm -hmm. to feel that your energy is gone and you You feel like you're not doing enough and you're hopeless and you're sad, but you think I'm supposed to be happy. I have a child and this is what I always wanted. So it's a very, it can be a very confusing time, especially in someone who hasn't felt that way before. Yeah. Now that we're talking about it, I'm thinking a lot back to like my own experience and just really feeling very anxious um, and wanting to be in control of everything and not having that control was surfacing a lot of different um, feelings within me. And that was really tough. Um, And is this normal? Like, I think that was the toughest call. Mm -hmm. So I gave birth to my son in 2018. 
-hmm. And I remember coming home from the hospital, totally exhausted, clueless. You know, you have to take care of a human now. And it doesn't matter how many books you read. It's very hard. Physically healing. It's not just a birth of a new uh, child. It's a birth of a new mom. So it's a huge transition. And I remember finally getting into the shower and the first moment I had alone with myself in a few days and I just cried. And I, I remember feeling like I can't stop crying. I don't know why I'm crying, but I think I'm just definitely very overwhelmed. So when I came out of the shower, my mom saw me and she saw me crying. And of course, seeing your child cry, she's just like, oh my God, like what's happening? Are you okay? (laughs) And I was just like, mom, like I can't stop crying. I don't know why I'm crying, but I think, you know, I don't know what's going on. Like I knew that this would happen, but I just feel very overwhelmed. And she said, it's okay, whatever you're feeling, you have to talk about it. You have to let out your feelings because you'll feel so much better. The littlest things can be very bothersome. So I think I was lucky I had my mom and my mother-in-law and my grandmother-in-law that provided me with a lot of insight on postpartum care, which the fourth trimester is a real thing. Like, Mm. again, women don't talk about this. It is very real. They were telling me like what to eat, what not to eat for healing, milk production, anti-inflammatory care, all sorts of nuts and seeds I've never heard of. And then in my science-driven mind, I'm like, why am I taking these? Like, how is this going to help me? (laughs) What's the science behind this? So it was a lot of added pressure to being a good daughter and being a good mom and not just the external pressure but there's also a lot of internal pressure that we place on ourselves when we see people on social media they're talking about oh I did it naturally without an epidural and (laughs) breastfeeding without ease like the perfect latch and it was fine it was easy it is not easy and even in some of the words that Nima had shared in her letter and her sister had mentioned that there's lots of these pressures that and the pressure of not being able to fit society's construct of an ideal mother is what drove her to the breaking point. So in your experience, do you think that these personal, societal, and like cultural pressures can fuel mood disturbances differently in South Asian women? Absolutely. I mean, this is, we're not just our biology. We're not just our hormones. We are psychological beings, we're cultural beings, our thoughts, our emotions, and our behaviors, they all have a role to play in our mental health and especially our mood. And to think about, you know, the South Asian mother, you know, I have an Indian mother and, you know, yours sounds very supportive and very kind and mine is as well. And I would even go to say as they, the typical image of an Indian mother is so sacrificial mm-hmm. and she's just like a Mary Poppins. She just does everything, <laughs> has everything. Yeah. She's just extraordinary and perfect and amazing and cooks and cleans and works and, yeah. you know, and is beautiful. And, you know, there's yeah. <laughs> so much pressure. And I think this is on all mothers, but especially on South Asian mothers, you have so many roles to play. So I think this cultural pressure is is not right. And we have to think about mothers as their other, as their own beings, really. Has she had time for herself? Has Mm -hmm. she re-engaged in some of her hobbies? Has she had enough sleep, enough to eat? Is anyone helping her with the baby? All these things need to be thought about. In spite of our mothers being so great, we can't think of 
Indian mothers just being these wizards that can do everything. No one can do everything. It's yeah. just not possible. We need Absolutely to be agree with that. realistic and compassionate towards, yeah. towards people. So how can spouses and family members kind of create a safer space for loved ones who may be going through something like this, but also not just this, but just mental health challenges in general? I think, you know, your example is really great. You have to talk about it. Like your mother said, you have to talk about it. Um, but nothing is really a substitute for professional care. And I think we need to destigmatize professional care mm-hmm. and seeing a therapist, seeing a psychiatrist, medication if needed. These things are life-saving. We have to throw everything we've got at these challenges because mm-hmm. they're very difficult. They're very difficult to treat. And we have to be very compassionate towards the patient if they're a family member or otherwise. So in terms of family, just being compassionate, listening, being patient with them, these things take time to heal and to get a professional involved sooner rather than later. Yeah, I agree with you. During my OB rotation in medical school, we use the postnatal depression scale, which is just a piece of paper with some questions on it that we would hand to new mothers just to rule out any red flags or see anything out of the ordinary. So after given birth, I was also handed one of these tables to kind of turn there a bit. And I remember thinking, no one's personally asking me this and I could lie. And personally, I didn't experience anything beyond the baby blues. And I was also screened by my son's pediatrician. And when he asked me, I felt like I could be open with him because he was asking me more personally than me just filling out a piece of paper. In your experience and in your practice, how do you encourage more honesty and open dialogue when it comes to screening and diagnosis? I think talking to someone and especially trained professional like myself, we're trained to look at body language, eye contact, emotion. It's hard to lie. Our emotions don't lie. Uh, It's easy to, to have our words be that way, but just kind of watching someone talk. And I think if someone is asking you compassionately how you truly are, I think it, people feel safe to tell mm-hmm. how they actually are feeling. And I think it's important that we normalize just speaking about it. So talking, really just talking. Yeah, I actually recently did this. This is just a side note. I did this podcast with a licensed marriage and family therapist, Aparna Sagaram. Um, and she spoke a lot about how within the South Asian culture, there's this thing of secrecy. They don't want to talk about it, that they'd rather kind of struggle in silence about these things. And uh, like you mentioned, it's so important to create that safe space, especially with you as a psychiatrist, for someone to be comfortable opening up so many emotions that they probably might have not, not even gotten out there with their family members. Right. That's very interesting to me. Did she suggest why we are that way? It's very curious, right? Yeah. We're such a social community. We, we have historically, we've had so many festivals and events. Mm -hmm. We're very social around people often. I think that has continued now in this century. Why are we secretive? (laughs) I don't get it. (laughs) She did mention that it's a lot about like, what will people think? Of course. Yeah. So that might have something to do with that as well. But yeah, so interesting. It is. And I'm kind of here to be in everyone's face about it. We have so much mental illness in our community. I can attest to this. I've had research in this. I've researched with, with our population. And we need to change as a culture. I think that's a very heavy statement, but I'm 
I'm going to back it. I think we need to change. I think we need to be more compassionate. We need to be less competitive. And people, you know, are really suffering. Our community is really suffering, uh, both in India and in the US, Canada, the UK. Mental illness is rampant. And until we change as a culture, until we change as a society, I think we're not going to get the results that we need because our biology isn't going to change. Our genetics aren't going to change. We must change our environment, our culture, our society. And that might help. In fact, I think it most definitely will help. And it's going to be a slow process, but we have to change. We can't continue on like this. Talking with you and doing these podcasts makes me feel like our generation is taking that step. You know, like we're waking up to that, that this is an issue that needs to be confronted. I've made a career of it. It's my personal and professional duty, I think, to, to change this viewpoint of, of mental illness, in, especially in our community. There was, there was a study, I think by the WHO, but some kind of global entity, and they found that the quality of someone's mental health pretty much determines the quality of their life, which has been corrected for the amount of money they have, where they live, their education, all of these factors, nothing compared to the level of their mental health. So if you want to live well, I mean, take care of your mental health. And yeah, then absolutely. That, that brings up so many things. Well, how do you do that? There's so much there to think about. So on the topic of suicide, I want to discuss intrusive thoughts and suicidal ideations. So let's just take this new mom scenario. Um, so a new mother is feeling overwhelmed, lack of sleep, experience some mood changes. And now as she's driving, she has this thought that, oh, I want to swerve into oncoming traffic just out of the blue. Or as she's washing the dishes, she feels I could cut my wrist with this knife. Are these intrusive thoughts or suicidal ideations in your experience? At what point would you encourage someone to seek help and what kind of help? So intrusive thoughts, they are exactly how you describe. They just kind of pop up in a situation, but they ought to scare the person who has them. If they are shocking, they're like, hey, why did I have that? That doesn't make sense at all. That's one way of having a reaction to it. Another is, yeah, I'm really down. This makes a lot of sense that I want to do this. So is it congruent to your mood or not is one thing to think about. Irrespective of that, as soon as someone has such a thought, they must consider getting professional help immediately. Does that mean finding a psychiatrist or does that mean going to an ER? That's how critical this is. Having thoughts about killing yourself or even harming yourself are very serious. And in postpartum depression, women may even have thoughts of harming their child, which are very scary for women. Mm -hmm. They really freak out and they think, I would never do that. Why am I thinking of this? So the sooner the better. And in fact, many women, my patients who are pregnant or planning to get pregnant, they find me or another psychiatrist prior to even entering the postpartum period because they're that concerned. So I think to your listeners, they can think about, you know, if there's a woman uh, thinking about getting pregnant or is pregnant, find a psychiatrist beforehand, establish care beforehand so that if symptoms come up, they can monitor you. So I, I've done this before. It works great. You kind of establish care, get to know the patient. And when they're in the postpartum period, you monitor them. And if they're like, okay, things are happening, then you just straight away medicate them. And you can avoid 
so many difficult symptoms like the ones we just discussed. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that tidbit. Actually, I was going to ask you like how, cause I'm sure a lot of our listeners are wondering like what the process would be like, like say yeah. you go into the office, you fill out the questionnaire and some red flags come up, like what would the process be? Do you mind to kind of just summarize that for our listeners? Absolutely. So let's say you already are in a postpartum period you have not found a psychiatrist yet or established care preemptively, you could either find a psychiatrist on your own or ask your doctor for recommendations or just go online and look for a psychiatrist who's currently accepting patients. That's, that's what the process would be. And each psychiatrist has their own idea of how to start care, but it would be some paperwork and you would set a time and then you would meet and you would talk. And, you know, in our pandemic days, it would likely be over telepsych mm-hmm. uh, medicine. So that would, that would be how it would go. Important thing to think about with this though, is you are with a psychiatrist who makes you feel comfortable. It's really hard to reveal your innermost thoughts with someone who you have a strong reaction to. So if you feel more comfortable with a woman, go with that. If you don't mind, then you know, think about that too. Or if it's a certain ethnicity, if, if you as a South Asian woman feel more comfortable with a South Asian woman, you can come to me, of course. So these little things matter. These little details really matter when it comes to mental health. So I would encourage all your listeners to think about that too. That's a really good point, actually. That's also not discussed very frequently that you're you're able to pick and choose your care, right? Like if, again, like you mentioned, if you're uncomfortable, feel free to choose a different psychiatrist or choose care from someone that you are comfortable with. Totally, totally. You know, no psychiatrist is the same in their approach and you're going to feel more comfortable with certain people than you are with others. Mm-hmm. For example, you have had a bad situation with oh, an Indian woman. You were not going to feel comfortable <laughs> with a female psychiatrist or if you've been traumatized by a man, you're not going to want to go to a male psychiatrist. Right. Yeah. These little things matter. And It's unfortunate if someone has a bad interaction like this and they didn't think about these factors, they may just not ever seek mental health care again. And we really don't want that. So Mm -hmm. please think about these little details when you're looking for a psychiatrist or therapist. Thanks for that tip. Yeah. So we're going to do a quick true and false um, and just to present some interesting facts for our listeners. Okay. So first one, true or false, other pre-existing conditions like, for example, hypothyroidism can produce symptoms of postpartum depression. True. Postpartum depression can only occur in birth mothers versus like adopted. False. Men can show signs of postpartum depression or anxiety. True. Uh, Postpartum depression is hereditary. True, yeah, can be. You are more likely to encounter postpartum depression if you have a history of mental health illness. Yes, true. Uh, You are more likely to have postpartum depression if you have had it with previous pregnancies. Yes, most definitely. And uh, you cannot take antidepressants while breastfeeding. False. All right, so since we're on the topic of antidepressants, Dr. Singh, let's talk treatment options here. The most important thing to know, uh, especially when considering postpartum depression, the regulations and recommendations are changing for pregnant women and postpartum women who are breastfeeding. Some medications are safe and the risk and benefit ratio tilts towards having women take the medication so that they're healthy and they're able to take care of themselves and their child. So 
please talk to your doctor. You don't have to suffer. There are medications that will help you. And the great scientists of the world agree that they're helpful, more helpful than harmful for you and your baby during this time. So antidepressants are definitely an option. So let's just say someone is placed on an antidepressant. There's always this stigma towards, first of all, taking them while you're breastfeeding. And then second, I'm going to be on this forever. Mm. Is that always the case or how long is treatment usually? I think it's a very common misconception that people are on antidepressants forever. But if you think about the biology, you're, you're changing the brain and the brain will adapt. Okay. It'll take time. But the brain will, will change its biochemistry to increase serotonin, for example, if you're taking an SSRI. So treatment can vary in terms of length for each person, but you have to think about all the factors, okay? A new mother, there's a bunch of different factors, um, changes that have happened to her in her life. So when things kind of calm down, you can consider getting off of medication and I do it all the time. I take people off medication, clean up their regimens all the time. I've done it for years. And it you can do that. It changes throughout the course of people's lives. So there's no kind of sentence that once you start this medicine, you're on it forever. Um, it's going to help you. It's going to help you through a difficult time. And once that difficult time is up, maybe you won't need it anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's to have long-term care with your psychiatrist to find out when is a good time for you to start and you know stop medication. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, um, and also there's this conversation about oh if I see a psychiatrist I for sure am going to be put on medication. Is that always the case? How do you evaluate that? No I don't always put people on medicine. Every case is individual. Is there a need for medicine? Is there not? Is there a need for therapy? And is therapy going to be enough? Sometimes that is the case. And sometimes just making other changes in your life, um, whether that's taking care of yourself, increasing your health, healthy practices, healthy living practices, exploring your relationships to others. There's so many factors to consider. Psychiatry is treating the whole person and their mental health. It's not just one pill that's going to solve everything. It can be very helpful. It can make a lot of changes and it can be life-saving, but it doesn't solve the entire problem. Yeah. I think reevaluating your life practices, that's a really important point. Thanks to this pandemic, I had my very first anxiety attack. Felt like my heart was just not slowing down. Felt like like someone sitting on my chest. I don't know how to escape this feeling like impending doom. Something's going to happen to me. Um, I remember just like grounding myself. Um, I definitely sat down and reevaluated again, like my life practices, thinking like, what is adding to my anxiety? Like, what can I take off the table right now that doesn't need necessarily need to be here? And that's a really important part of this whole aspect, right? Sure. Yes. Huge. And therapy can help with that. Speaking with your psychiatrist can help with that. Um, cause sometimes you just need the tools. Uh, to be able to just write that down and someone to kind of lead the way for you and give you a bit of guidance on that front. Most definitely. And I think when someone is in the middle of an anxiety or depression episode, they can't think always most logically and most problem solving. And they can't Mm -hmm. even see that, hey, I haven't worked out in three months or, hey, I haven't eaten a vegetable in two weeks. You know, so I think 
having someone to kind of point it out to you that like, hey, are you taking care of yourself can make all the difference. Mm -hmm. And understanding the different factors that go into why you're feeling that way. Totally, totally. So important. So Dr. Singh, in your work with the South Asian community and your research in cultural psychiatry, what would you say are some of the common stigmas that you encounter in your practice and how can we combat these? Yeah, so stigma-wise, of course, the stigma of mental health care, thinking it isn't real, uh, thinking mental health isn't real, thinking depression is just a lack of motivation or a lack of religion. Um, those are very common. I think I've noticed through my research and through my work that since many South Asian people believe this, by the time they get to a psychiatrist, they are, their illness is severe. It is, you know, it has, they have all symptoms of depression. They, or they've become psychotic or they're suicidal. It's, it gets to the point where it's, it's a big deal. Um, a very big deal, sometimes even requiring hospitalization. So those are, I think that's the most heinous stigma that we have, that mental health is, is not real and we don't need to pay attention to it. It will not just go away, okay? Like you need to, you need to think about your life, your mental health and, and get treatment. So I think that's the most important one. Um, cultural stigmas, there's so many, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we could be here for days. Hey, yeah. <laughs> But then, you know, in my patients, it affects them in a very interesting way. It, it comes out as sometimes women have felt that they aren't on par with men. And there's this, I think there's, you know, you can agree that there's an underlying misogyny in our culture. Mm -hmm. And that can lead to depression because women don't feel, or they may not feel able to assert themselves or able to have their own thing, have their own time. They need to be serving other people the whole time. So that's a very powerless position to be, a powerless and hopeless position, I think. So things like that really play a role in mental health care. So, and there's so many of those, you know, I, I, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are because that's something I've seen. I think that definitely when you shine a light on it and say, hey, this is what it is. This is how we can combat this. We need to change the way we think because guess what? The world is changing too. And not that this hasn't been happening for years and years. You know, it's not something new. This has been happening, but maybe just society was different and that we need to take that into account that right now in, in today's day and age, we have all this help that's available. Um, and I remember reading some very scary statistic about how South Asians are the least likely to take advantage of mental health care within the US. Um, and I'm thinking, you know what, we need this <laughs> and we should be taking advantage of it because it's out there for us. No, I, I think this stigma that we're discussing now, we want to end the stigma for Nima, break the stigma for Nima. I mean, ask her family, ask her friends. Yeah. There's so much pain there and they're, you know, very boldly and bravely writing about it and hoping that others will follow suit and, and think about their own mental health, but ask them. I mm -hmm. mean, they think mental health isn't real. They've lost someone they cherish and love. Yeah. It's kind of unfortunate that it has to take something so heartbreaking to get that conversation going. And time and time again, there is this underlying event that causes these changes. It's yeah. just so unfortunate that these 
sad, sad events have to happen. And then we're like, we need to change this when really we should be handling it. And with us, like this is our passion. So simple and easy for us to talk about it and try to educate people to break that stigma. Right. Yeah, it is unfortunate. You're right that it takes something so big to cause change, but we need to still honor that event and hopefully it will be the night is for change. Um, we, you know, if we learn from it, maybe, you know, we'll save someone else like Nima um, yeah. in the future. Absolutely. So we talked a little bit about the stigmas of South Asian communities, but what would you feel are some of the strengths? Because I know you had mentioned, like, we love to get together and have festivals. And like, what are some of the strengths of our South Asian community that you feel like would really help bolster or we need to utilize to help with the mental health aspect? It's so interesting that you bring this question up because I've been thinking a lot about what are our strengths? You know, in my research, it came up, you know, of course, some negative aspects, which is hard to to hear and to accept, even for me. But um, I think I've been, you know, I have some, I think, that I've come up with. Our focus on family and family ties is so great. Yeah. So wonderful. However, sometimes that gets distorted a bit and you think you have a right over someone's every decision that they make. That's obviously not okay. However, if we go back to the basics, the basic principle is that we love and cherish our family ties. So let's focus on that. And if someone's suffering, you love them. Of course you want them to get better, right? And that may be any type of suffering, whether it's a medical issue or psychiatric or financial or, you know, anything really. Mm -hmm. So we have that basic foundation there. But can we be that family member that anyone can come up to you and say, this is my problem. Will you help me? And are you willing to listen? In my head, of course, of course, someone who loves family and thinks family ties are important, that person is willing to listen. Um, but, you know, in reality, that's not always the case in our culture. So I think our focus on family is definitely a positive. I think we are, by nature, a very celebratory people. We love to celebrate different events, different festivals. And I think we can carry that over and just celebrate life and cherish life and appreciate um, all that life has to offer. And I think that's our foundation too. But I think it's been distorted into like these events where who's wearing what and who has (laughs) right whose diamonds are the biggest, you know, it's just crazy making. Yeah. And I think there's a very critical nature at times to our people and a very gossipy nature and a culture. But if we just love each other, like we say we do, we say we love each other. We say guests are God that come to our house, right? right? Let's be that way. Let's be honest about that. Let's actually treat them well, both when they're in our house and when they leave, you know, and there's a lack of empathy there. It's a failure of, of love there. Um, but I think we can be a loving community. And I think that, you know, in a world of representation and in a world of people of color and we're looking at race and religion and ethnicity and we're looking at these things and how they impact us in our life, we need the support of people who look like us and who have been raised like us. We really need that. And so I, I think we need to just go back to our foundations, our positive foundations of loving each other and celebrating life. 
Thank you so much for sharing that. That was very insightful and such a good point, right? That it's our strength to be close knit as a community and we need to kind of tap into that. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for the great question. To your knowledge, are there any outreach programs available for mothers to connect with or do you have any recommended mental health resources? Yes, I would recommend NAMI, N-A-M-I. They are a national organization that deal with all sorts of mental health care. They can connect you with a psychiatrist in your area if you can't find one. They're very reputable. They have excellent information and they're very helpful. I've met NAMI counselors who give their phone number out and they're available around the clock. I think NAMI is a great organization. So N-A-M-I. Thank you for sharing that. And how can our listeners connect with you? They can connect with me on many different ways. They can first go to my website. It's www.thejazzydoc.com, J-A-Z-Z-Y, doc.com. It's the same name on Instagram, thejazzydoc. And um, yeah, feel free to contact me if you, you know, if you need a psychiatrist or even if you just want to talk about what we've talked about here and expand on that. I would love to, you know, I, I take this work very seriously and I'm very passionate about uh, mental health outreach and, and connecting with other people, you know, like yourself and hopefully, um, you know, there, there'll be more of that. And we, like I said, as a community, we've got to band together. It is only, that is only good things will come from that. So please reach out. And thank you for having me. This has been really fun. Absolutely. To Nima's family, we are so truly sorry for your loss. For Nima and all the other mothers out there, let's continue this dialogue in educating our community to break this stigma surrounding mental illness and provide the support our families really need. And to Dr. Jasmine Singh, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and wisdom with us today. You are doing some incredible work for the community. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to follow our social media pages at Manmukti, M-A-N-N-M-U-K-T-I. Subscribe to our podcast, review it, share it, and look out for our next episode. Bye for now.